Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is our second and final episode on the story, The Hero as Werewolf, uh, which was originally published in the anthology, The New Improved Sun in 1975. And there is a lot to talk about with this story. So I think we could just jump straight into it on this episode. And there are are two really big categories of things that I want to talk about. One of them will be dealing with the story and with the themes. But I think, you know, longtime listeners to the show will not be surprised to hear that what I want to do first is to start by talking about the world and the world building. And I want to really kick that off by talking about how this world came to be, how the world of the story uh, developed out of the the real world of uh, the early 1970s that Gene Wolfe is, is living in when he writes the story. So we know from Emmett Pendleton's backstory that we're in the 2050s or maybe the early 2060s in this story. So that's a good 70 or 80 years in the future of the story's composition. And we also know that the big genetic change that happened took place in the aughts. So uh, you know, more than a decade ago now for us, uh, I guess I missed it as well. So uh, my kids, our future grandkids and whatnot will uh, suffer the same fate as Paul, I suppose. Uh, but I'm really interested in if we can suss out how this actually happened in the world of the story, if we can figure out what the developments were that Wolf doesn't spell out or doesn't explicate uh, as clearly as you know another writer might try to do. The first question I've got on this topic for you, Brandon, is can we figure out how a massive program to alter the genes of living people was begun and how it was implemented? Like who came up with this idea? Why? And how did they make it work? Because I just don't know that we could do this in our own society. I'm not sure that we can either. It's clear to me that one of the maybe few inciting incidents that caused this transition to occur was a total breakdown in uh, like global supply chain, global economy, um, resource management. I mean, this is a critique of a hyper-industrialized society that is not thinking about the impact of using resources and what it means to burn coal and drill oil endlessly without thinking about without thinking that there's going to be an impact of any kind on uh, the world and the people in it. So as I was saying, one of the things that allowed this change to occur was a population in crisis and somebody having some sort of solution. And I think part of that solution was that people could subsist on less, using less resources, and live longer, healthier, disease-free, you know, sickness-free lives. So, I mean, to me, the masters could be vampires of a kind, or maybe something more like Banicula. I don't know exactly what they eat or live on. I'm not sure how much meat they eat. But the crimson crystals that are used as a drug that are smell like raspberries and are stored in the moon... You know, this could be a sort of indication that the masters are sort of vampires. This could be a a reference to a type of blood drug. And this is really a secret werewolf versus vampire story that, uh, that, you know, wolf just doesn't spell out. But I think the genetic alteration, at least in how it occurs, is the way all 
atrocities are committed is somebody uh making blaming people for a problem blaming people like emmett whose family farmed whose diseased chickens were sold uh and made other people ill putting a face to the problem and then having a solution that people can easily go along with especially if they're invited into that solution as being a part of an elite class and i think that is kind of the development of this uh change in the genetic evolution of mankind yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that it has to be a, a program that's implemented after the crisis point, not before it. As I think we just we just know that this is just not something that our societies are capable of now of of looking ahead and say and and saying that X is going to be a problem in two generations. We should fix it now. This just doesn't seem to be something that we're capable of. And so this is a program that is implemented after the crisis point when the crisis is happening, and that crisis seems to be that there's even just not enough food. Why that is, it is not entirely clear. That's something we might circle around to in some of the other questions that I've got. But it does seem that individual human beings are needing to go get this genetic treatment because it's going to change how the humans themselves derive energy from the environment around them, right? That it's going to obviate some kind of need for for food, either not as much food or different types of food. And I think that you're right to point to these red crystals that the, the man keeps in this moon case as being some kind of sustenance. And so the, the part of the genetic encoding, though it's not ever made explicit in the story, I think has to be about... Uh, altering the way that humans as a biological machine derive energy from the environment, which is just simply to say that that individual people don't need as much food anymore, and therefore the limited food that is still available can feed everybody. And that this is something that you would go volunteer to get because otherwise you're going to starve or, you know, get killed fighting for food in the way that we actually see um, the, the, the Homo sapiens doing in this story. So I, I think that's a great answer. Right. And, and we also know that they were also upgraded in some ways in the sort of things that people in our time always covet, which is to be a paragon of virtue and intellect, uh, where virtue is really kind of a stand in, where peace is really kind of a stand in for virtue in the story. So this is a program that offers you to be maybe perfectly rational and logical and to desire peace above all else. Uh, that's a pretty good selling point if you're coming off of a really terrible crisis. And we can see that the scientists didn't just stop with people. They pretty much altered the whole of uh, living biology for the world. The trees are different. The uh, cephalopods are different. And People are different. So we're talking about whole new ecosystems being created from this genetic change. Yeah, I mean, right. I think if we could see that this crisis that has happened, the the you know, destruction of Earth's ecosystem, the using up all of the resources, as it's put in the, the story, is something that arises out of human foolishness and human competition. And so to also then eradicate those drives genetically is a long-term solution, right? That if we'd been smarter, if we'd been less competitive, if we'd been more willing to to take the long view and to think about our, ourselves in community as opposed to think about our needs as individuals, then we would never have gotten to that crisis in the first place. So let's just 
alter human nature so that we don't behave that way in the future. Uh, that All of that is just subtly in the, the fine details of the background of this story, though we'll see how that comes up, uh, how that plays into the sort of broader themes or the bigger themes that Wolf is more explicit about. I want to take my line of question in here in the direction of uh, something that you just said about the whole uh, the whole ecosystem itself being changed. But before we get there, I, uh, I just want to make sure that we explicate everything that we can about this the the how this program affected people first before we look at the rest of the world. So there are still Homo sapiens running around in this world. So why didn't the the masters, or, or maybe we should say, why didn't the humans at the point of the the change make this change compulsory from the the start? Right, if people like Paul are a problem that they want to deal with, I mean, it would seem like the solution was to just give everyone this genetic treatment. So why do you think they didn't do that? Well, we don't really know what the life cycle is for this new type of human. We don't know how long they live. We know that Emmett can't blend in with them because he looks old and he has uh, physical genetic flaws like warts on his face. And so it really indicates to me that there is some sort of genetic youthfulness that is preserved uh, in these new masters. And that's why Paul and Janie can sort of fit in. So I don't really know if these people die other than being killed. And so I wonder on some level if the whole myth of the old Homo sapiens, the these rooms to trap them in, the ghost houses as Paul calls them, calls them um, and the allowance for this type of underclass to run around is sort of a strategy on the part of the people who are above the masters to do population control on some level, to let people die, to keep the values of peaceableness and intellect intact so they don't change as people think there's nothing to fear anymore. Um, and I think that that is, that is part of the reason. We also see that there maybe aren't that many of them in the city and that this is more of a problem in the countryside, which has been absolutely obliterated by machines. So the... Uh, it's not clear to me at all that masters live in live outside of cities and that humans outside of cities might not be living quite in this way might be able to hunt animals and might have might have developed a tolerance or even a sort of inoculation to some of the early diseases that were uh, the cause for some of this change so they can eat animals or chickens or something like that again too so I think that raises some real interesting questions about what is actually happening in this world, right? So, uh, I mean, why are humans eating other people? Why are they eating masters in in the cities instead of just living out in orange groves or hunting elk in the the mountains, right? Especially if those areas are not inhabited by the masters. And I, th- I think that your, your uh, suspicion there is probably right. But if that's true, then it does seem like there should be this whole ecosystem out there for Homo sapiens to be living and maybe even thriving in, but that does not seem to be the case, right? Emmett Pendleton's whole backstory is we were driven to the city because there wasn't anything to live on in the countryside. Why has that happened? Well, he said it's just gotten pretty bad, which is which could mean a number of things. One, there was there was no resources or food left, which is, I think, what you're suggesti- suggesting. Um, but it could also be seen that the 
there's a total breakdown of human community. And so it's just dangerous to live there anymore. That Emmett opted to move to the city where there's a more organized uh, human community where he can marry off his daughter rather than whatever's going on out in the countryside. Um, But the fact that the people he meets in the city are a better option than the ones in the country is, is kind of a chilling sort of indicator of how bad it's gotten out there. The eating people thing seems to me just sort of a matter of preference. Uh, like they enjoy eating and hunting and killing people. Um, they enjoy embracing their animalistic nature. I did mild sort of uh, reading on this story, very little, um, but I did come across a comment that Wolf might be playing with sort of the Eloy and uh, Morlock paradigms that H.G. Wells used in The Time Machine, and that these are the human beings here are just people that have embraced this animal nature and live in a sort of metaphoric underground and hunt the Eloy because they can. I certainly agree that that's some of the imagery that Wolf is using here. And of course, we know that he's a massive H.G. Wells fan. We've seen that over and over again in, in his stories. But I don't really think that Wolf writes stories that way, right? One of the things that Wolf does so masterfully is ground his his speculative settings in uh, a, a sort of real history that he knows and maybe is not fully communicating to his, his readers. And one of the things that he's super interested, as we've seen uh, really in all the stories that we've been covering, lately is that in this period in particular, he's very interested in looking at uh, the way that societies shape us as individuals, the way that the the constraints that we have on our choices and uh, on the things that we can imagine, the things that we can conceive of as being our options, uh, the way that all of those constraints shape us. And so I, I have to think that Wolf here really means it when he says that there's resource scarcity and he's looking at how that's going to affect a society. So I don't think it's just kind of a, 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 a metaphor. I don't think that it's just, uh, and I, I don't think it's just that he's exploring humans who actually might like hunting other people. I think this is supposed to be something that uh, people have gone to reluctantly. And I think that we can even see that in the different behaviors of Emmett and Janie and Paul in the hunting scene, that Janie and Paul seem to be a lot more aggressive and taking a lot more joy out of this than Emmett does, even though he's kind of interested in what uh, diabetes blood would taste like. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I don't think Wolf is merely using this as a kind of metaphor. And uh, it's an excellent point about this period of Wolf's writing really looking at the, the, the way people can conceive of their life choices. But the turn to to cannibalism and eating raw meat. Um, They don't prepare the food. They don't cook it in any way. Uh, They just eat these people. Uh, That, I think, speaks more to the type of change, the type of genetic change that has taken place in the masters than in the sort of eating and hunting practices of the werewolves. Something has legitimately turned these masters into food for homo sapiens. And I, I that's kind of what I think the, the grounding of this story is in. 
Well, I guess from my perspective, I think that what has turned them into food is that they're actually the only things that there are to eat left on the the planet. That in fact, the Earth is just a a wasteland, and that uh, that's what you know the chickens are are dying. That's why the the soil is being overturned by these machines. That these are efforts to try to to revitalize the the nutrient. Uh, barren soil and that just nothing is growing, that there are no animals that are surviving and that uh, the the reason the masters can exist is because they've had this change where they're, the, what they require for sustenance is now different than for Homo sapiens. But for Homo sapiens who still need to get energy from other living beings, whether that's that's plants or or animals, this is it. This is this is all that there is to consume. This these are the last living entities actually on the the planet, and I think that's part of why we are seeing you know even the, the, the trees and uh, really the other life forms that we do see are all things that have been engineered. That this is part of an ongoing project to to repopulate the the planet with new life forms that can grow in this uh, nutrient barren world that uh, our ancestors, our predecessors, our immediate predecessors have destroyed. Right. I think that, I think that's the case as well. And it, it just, the only question mark, the only wrench here is how are people actually living in the country? Are they just eating one another? Do they not have a classification system for human and not human are they just running around being total cannibals? And and that's really the question that's unanswered, I think, in the text. Yeah, I agree with that. And that, that's something I would love to hear from the, the wolf pack on is that what do they think is actually going on out in the, the countryside? But I think we can we can leave that behind. I think I feel like we have raised all of the questions that need to be raised about about how this world came to be. I'm not sure that we uh, came up with as many answers as we had questions. So that'll be a fun forum conversation. But let's talk now about what this world is. And, and the first question I've got for you, Brandon, is what is the nature of the technology that the masters use here or really maybe i should phrase it this way how does that technology differ from the technology of the humans they've replaced in what way is their technology not contributing to the destruction of the planet the way that our own technology has in the the backstory here in this world so there are real questions about the source of light in this story it's all over the place um we see that the cities with these old and new buildings that Wolf describes to mountains are lit from within, which could be electric light or it could be something else. We see that trees generate light uh, in one way or another, and that that is a source of light. The moon is a source of light, and maybe the sun is a source of light as well, but technology behind it all is really unclear to me other than some sort of genetic alteration. So it could be that people, the masters, absorb light in some way and that everything is rooted in sort of solar technology. I mean, this uh, story appeared in a in an, in an anthology called The New Improved Sun, which might be about <laughs> I don't know what the other stories are in there, uh, but maybe the brief was to write a story about the solar power or the powers of the suns or something like that in some way. That's something we can uh, look up and put in the show notes or in the discussion or in the forum. Um, so it could be that this is a story about everything being powered by solar power on some level, um, by light, and Paul is 
disturbed in the story by sources of light he can't uh he can't ascribe anything to and this really comes up in the scene when they're on the bus and there's a dim light inside of the bus even though the lights are blacked out and even though the windows are blacked out and it's uh there's still some light emitting uh that he can't identify and so it could be that the masters also give off a sort of light uh as well though that's not explicit in the text and that could indicate that paul or janie has had some um genetic alteration done uh, but you know also with regards to technology we see the clothes and necklaces acting differently um that there are all these styles that go in and out of fashion from like mundane clothing that's covered in gemstones to this clothing that the women woman in the beginning of the story wears so i think we're looking at a society that has had to totally derive its energy in a full ecosystem uh, that is from resources that are outside of Earth, because as we've been saying, Earth has been depleted. But we do see rocket ships, and I don't know what's powering those. Uh, those need a tremendous amount of power to fly. So that's the one big open question for me is what powers the rocket ships? And we're also told that there are vehicles waiting for these people who've been convening in the park for this public lecture as well. But it is true that all of the actual, except for the rocket, where we don't get any information about what's propelling it, all of the energy sources that we actually do see, all of the technologies that require some kind of energy source, some kind of power source to function, are not using uh, gasoline or or uh, uh electricity generated from coal. They're not using fossil fuels of, of, of any sort, I guess, right? They're, what they're using is either bioluminescence. We see that twice. We see that two places in the story or uh, the chemical alteration of the air in order to make it more solid, to make it slightly solid so that it can, or maybe slightly liquid is the better way to, to put it, so that it can be used as an elevator shaft, but none of that requiring massive amounts of electricity or the burning of fossil fuels or something. So and I think you've nailed it that the, about what the brief of this story was. And that's also kind of why this story is an unusual word length. And we've had to make two episodes out of it uh, because Wolf was invited to participate in this anthology that clearly had this in mind. Uh, it would be a fun bonus episode to do on Patreon would be to check out some of the other stories of this anthology if we can get our, our hands on some some copies. I, I do want to keep talking about some of the technology or some of the, the other kind of maybe future sci-fi elements that we see uh, that we see here in the Masters uh, civilization, I guess we could call it. And that's the, the, the mind control over material objects that we see. There, there are three instances, at least I'm, that I'm thinking of. You might have some, some more in mind. But the three that I'm thinking of are the, the, the skirt that this woman wears that she's able to hike up with her own mental power. There's the, the snake necklace that she wears that can turn into a kind of actual snake. But then we also see this woman manipulate you know, a bed sheet at Paul's home. Uh, to my mind, this is something that that the masters can do as the result of the genetic engineering, that this is some kind of uh, actual power that they have that's generated from within their body. But it is also possible that this is actually a technology, that there's some kind of machine at work here. What, what's your sense of that? My sense is that it's uh, it's, gener it's it's the result of the genetic alteration. And that's because Paul says he's seen the trick with the bed sheet many times before. His lack of understanding of the ghost houses 
or why he calls these traps ghost houses when they're clearly powered by electricity, or at least Emmett thinks so, is because he thinks he's he's being trapped by masters who are using this mind control that is so powerful to keep doors shut or to keep him in a chair or to do testing on him, something along those lines. I think I think he kind of fears what the powers could do from people when he is the hunted rather than the hunter. But when he's the hunter, when he's killed his prey, when the life is kind of leaving them, he doesn't worry about these powers as much. But it's clear that his understanding of how this telepathy really functions is uh, really causes him a lot of grief and fear when he is in any sort of building that a master is running. And I think that mental telepathy is part of the reason why. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just a mental power, you know, like we get with the the X-Men or something like that. It's not an uncommon uh, uh it's not an uncommon element of science fiction stories. And we get some more about what's going on, I think with some of the the mental abilities, maybe we'll call them of the the masters. What is the deal with meta language in in this story? We didn't talk as much about it in the recap as as maybe we we could have, but there are two instances where this concept of meta language or, or something going on with the master's communication comes up. Uh, the first is in the the opening when Paul is is sitting in the the park. He's listening to this public lecture and he knows all of the words. He he knows what the the definitions of the words are, but he still somehow failing to understand what is actually being said with them, what is actually being communicated with them, which is an easy thing to gloss over in the beginning because we don't really know what the world is yet. And it, this might be something that we're supposed to understand that's weird and, and unique about Paul rather than, uh, rather than an aspect of the world. But then we get this concept of meta language when Paul is talking with the woman who he has hunted when he's back in his room. And uh, I'll just read a little bit of that conversation. I'll read that the part where that comes up. So the woman says, strange evolution, men become food for men. And and then to this, Paul says, I don't understand the second word. Talk so I know what you're saying. And, and by that, he means evolution. He doesn't understand the second word, doesn't understand the word evolution. And then she just says, that isn't even meta language. Only children's talk. So what is this meta language, do you think? Well, I really do wonder what it is. I mean, he says he doesn't understand the second word, evolution, but she could be referring to something else entirely. And it could be the case that meta language is just communicating uh, without talking. These people can communicate using thoughts to one another. And that could be why uh, Paul, this idea of meta language being a sort of uh, psychic communication could be why Paul thinks that these people are alive after they're dead, that their brain is still active and he can hear their thoughts or they can project their thoughts uh, and have conversations with him, but they are otherwise dead. And so that could be what meta language is, um, just maybe more communicating on the emotional level or something like that. Uh, but otherwise, I, I really struggle to understand the concept if it's if it's something else. What what what, what were your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, those are my thoughts exactly. I think this is some kind of telepathic ability as well. Some maybe not fully telepathic, not in the way that people are actually able to read each other's thoughts or to speak directly into each other's minds, but that there's an, that they're able to manipulate words that are, are spoken uh, with some kind of extra level of telepathic communication, because we don't really see anybody just entirely not speaking, uh, but also communicating in this story, right? Even in the park, right? There are there, there are words that are being spoken aloud, but that Paul is is missing something uh, that that the people around him are are getting, and so I think that's what we're supposed to understand is the the meta language part of this. Uh, you know, it's kind of something that's neither one hundred percent just pure telepathy, but it's also not something that is just spoken language. It's something in between, is my sense. And again, this is going to be something that has to be from the new genetic engineering, right? And I think Wolf kind of gives us a, a clear example of. The- that early on uh, where he says uh, on page 61 that the masters were rising and there were tears and laughter and that third emotional tone that was neither amusement nor sorrow, the silken sound humans did not possess, but that Paul thought might express content as the purring of a cat does or community like the cooing of doves. And I think that that's probably what Wolf is thinking when he says metalanguage. Yeah, that line is absolutely the key to this, and and uh, what a cool what a cool idea! I, I hope we'll see more of that idea in some other wolf stories in the in the future. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about here in the, the world building is this policeman at this uh, the, the the same opening scene here. He is neither master nor human. What do you think the policeman is then? I was just waiting for Wolf to describe him with like tubes coming out of the bottom half of him like in for lesson uh because that that's what I think Wolf is kind of getting out here without getting at it. I I know the policemen serve the masters. They're they're like a Renfield class of people, but they are not human to Paul because they are not they are not living in what Paul considers to be maybe his own genetic tradition, which is kind of a, a weird overtone of this story and so they might be humans but they don't act like humans they act like servants of the masters well i think i have kind of a different understanding of what the policeman is than than you do i i I think the policeman's a dog person is uh in the way that kitty in uh sonia crane wesselman and kitty was a a cat Person, I think the policeman here is a dog person. Uh, the the word animal is actually even used in the the description of of him. We get this uh, this description of his eyes bright with stupidity that describes you know every super loving tail wagging uh, drooling dog that you know has ever tried to jump into my my lap. And then this real sense of duty and and loyalty and and gratitude for being cared for that I think are all ways that we could describe dogs. So that was my sense of this is that this is a a dog who has been genetically engineered to become a, a semi-sentient uh, creature uh, at least smart enough to to do this kind of work. It's a kind of planet of the apes scenario. Yeah, I really love that explanation. I think Wolf is absolutely coding a lot of his brief description of the policeman with language about dogs. He's bobbing his hairy head, grinning basking in recognition of approval. Uh, and, and you're right to point out animality here. Uh, this is something that I just kind of skimmed over as a word because the main character of the story displays so much animalistic uh, tendencies that I, I would think that, that I read it as the policeman occupies this strange 
space of almost being a traitor to humanity by going to serve the masters, the people who won't let him become like them in such a way without taking vengeance out on them and doing their evil bidding. Like I said, like a, like a Renfield sort of class. Right, right, and you brought this up in the the recap as well. This sense that 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 there's there's a kind of Victorianness to the the masters society here, right? That it's these people with all these fancy clothes, and they've got a snuff box, basically, right? I, I don't think that the the fat man at the beginning is actually described as wearing a top hat, but yet somehow everything else that Wolf describes leads me to just kind of put it there in my imagination. And they're walking towards vehicles, or at least some of them have vehicles waiting for them, which presumably means also drivers. And I think you had glommed on to the idea that there must be some kind of serving class. And I think there may very well be, but I think that they're all going to be these genetically engineered animals they might not all be dogs but i think that you know the policeman's the only one of them that we actually see here and one of the ways where i think that we see this working is actually wrapped up in the holograph of de Vries and 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 the fact that it's a holograph of hugo de Vries rather than gregor mendel right the two people who have you know the claim to have discovered genetics uh first and in fact, let's even just put that as a question. Why Why do you think that Wolf is using DeVries here rather than Mendel when we have actually seen Wolf employ Mendel before? It was a robot Mendel in the, the Temple of Genetics back in House of Ancestors. I, I, I've got some, some thoughts about this. Well, I don't have a really good answer other than that Gregor Mendel was a priest and Wolf used him for a very particular sort of reason in uh, the House of Ancestors. Was DeFries like a religious person at all? No, he. I mean, he was not certainly, you know, an ordained religious person the way that Gregor Mendel was. And this is where I think Wolf is making a conscious choice here, is that DeFries did a ton of work on the idea of cross-species gene exchanging, that you could actually put genes from animals or other types of living creatures into a human and change what humans are and you or you could do this with a dog you could change what a dog is by injecting it with you know some octopus gene or something like that i mean you know he was an actual scientist who did more sciencey things than the way i'm explaining it but this was a big part of his research this was something he was super into was this idea of cross species gene exchanging and i think that's 100% what is going on here, uh, that that's how the world is even surviving at this point, that that the things that humans have done to modify themselves are to take genes from other creatures on the planet and to modify human genes using the genes of other creatures, and that they're doing that then as well to to other creatures, right? They're making dog people. I think the bioluminescent trees that, uh, I think that goes with the bioluminescent octopus that we see in the building that in fact, that's what's going on there is that they're using the genes from the, the octopi in order to create these bioluminescent trees, right? That it's all interconnected that, that, that what we're doing is, is saying there are no more mineral resources on the planet, but we have all of these biological resources. So let's take the best attributes of, uh, of all of these different life forms and, and, and you know, try to find a way out of this environmental crisis. Yeah, that's certainly my sense of what's going on in the story as well. And this is definitely not the last time we'll see Wolf uh, attempt to save humanity with uh, <laughs> merging people with trees or plants <laughs> or, or something along those lines. 
Right. Yeah. This is something that he's going to be thinking about really for the, the, the entirety of his writing career. Though this is this is maybe the first time. I mean, we've had it in other stories, but it's really robust here, right? Where it's 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 in the foreground here. So I've got one more question in this category before I I, I jump into some something a little bit more thematic. But and this is just a, a plot question about what the masters are up to, what they're trying to accomplish with the ghost houses or what they're trying to accomplish by capturing old style humans. They might not actually be using the ghost houses for that purpose, even though that's what Paul thinks they're for. But once they have captured Paul in in the backstory that he tells us, they've they've tested him. And we we get this again at the end when when the the voice in the the lift tells him that, you know, he's that this scientist is going to come down and check on Paul. What are the masters actually trying to accomplish then with Paul when they have him captured or other old style humans? All we really know about this is Paul's fears about the ghost houses and the testing. So we know there's definitely medical testing involved. We know that it's maybe that the medical tests are being driven through machines on some level. And we know that at the end, and, and that, that, and those facts come from Paul's uh, own telling of his escape from the first time he was trapped in a ghost house. And at the end of the story, we learned that the, a scientist is detaining Paul in order to determine what, deviation Paul has taken from the optimal development pattern. And then the film that's played through the projector is about psychology, not physiology. It's about attachment theory. It's about how people develop. And what they capture then is Paul's suboptimal development through childhood, that his mother and he survived uh, on violence and killing. Uh, We see this with sort of Nicholas DeVries in some way, and we see difficult... We see difficult relationships between uh, mother and child being a very important theme in the death of Dr. Island. And I think Wolf is still sort of working some of that out. And we see no attachment to a peer group or a kind of uh, an attachment that's rooted in maybe the wrong sorts of things. And so I wonder if they're if they're more able to capture aberrant behavior that doesn't fit in with the higher intellect and peaceableness of the population rather than any sort of genetic code testing. Right. It's not entirely clear what it is that necessarily tips people off that that something is not right with Paul or that Paul is not a, a master, right? That he's different from from them. He's so good at at blending in. He's so good at, at passing for a, a master. And it's also not clear that there was really a live person in in the lift at the end versus like an actual, just a recording, right? That they, they use in any of these instances. But I do believe that someone really is on their way to, to Paul in this moment. The, the sense that I had of these, these two instances is that they're, they want to test Paul uh, genetically. They want to look at his blood and examine his genetic code to see if he is uh, a master that's where something is just not right, or if he's actually one of these old-style homo sapiens. But I also have the sense that with what they're going to do once they identify Paul is not exterminate him. I, I think they're going to give him the treatment. That that's the sense I have. That that what he's that he thinks he's evading uh something terrible, but in fact actually is maybe 
uh, uh, evading people who want to actually help him. I certainly get that sense. Uh, and and before I said Nicholas De- DeVries, it's Nicholas DeVore. I just wanted to to make that to make that <laughs> yeah. announcement here. But um, yeah, I get that sense as well that that there are so few humans left that they don't have to worry about the sort of policy of eugenics they were engaging with before. That it's just easier to treat them, to cure them, to turn them into masters than it is to have this uh, maybe underclass still running around though it, 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 it i do get the sense that this myth of the werewolf does have a service in the larger society in in keeping it ordered that these are the old people who destroyed the world if a few of them are still running around it it, it allow it, it allows the People who are making these decisions, building these ghost houses, designing society to maintain the status quo through some small element of fear. And so I'm really not sure. But I also get the sense that if they do catch a human, they're probably going to cure them rather than kill them at this point. Well, I think that leads right into the the next topic that I want to talk about, which is sort of why this world is, by which I really just mean, what is Wolf up to here? And this came up in the recap episode as well. It's really just the question of, is the world of the the Masters uh, a utopia? And and maybe it it can't possibly be a utopia, I guess, because, you know, the, the, the planet itself has been ruined in some sense. But is this at least... Uh, uh, is this a, is the society here at least an improvement on the society of our world? Is this a better society to live in than our own? Is is Wolf optimistic about this in some way? It's really hard for me to tell whether or not Wolf is optimistic about this society. Certainly, certainly, it has a rotten origin in people being taken advantage of, people being left out of the project of progress uh, that was being forced on everybody uh, and that some people could opt into, but there were those that were not allowed to opt into it. And so I don't, I think Wolf is just looking at the difficult development that this society has taken rather than trying to teach us a lesson about the society. Uh, clearly in this story, this kind of genetic mixing between humans and other species is is something, as we've pointed out, that is on Wolf's mind, that he does kind of end up looking at optimistically on some levels uh, in his later work. But at this point in his writing career, he has the hero being the werewolf. And I don't think that's an accident. I think he he doesn't look too kindly on societies who have been developed and led through change and have limited the freedom of the individual human and even reject the idea that a human being is a good thing. This is a society maybe without obvious problems, but it's a society that also has no sense of the spirit world in any way. It's a society in which maybe everybody is a villain. There are ghosts, there are werewolves, and I think Wolf kind of codes the master class as like these old school Dracula type vampires as well, um, that they're living off of some sort of other 
underclass or they've they've taken the life of something else in some way the spirit of something in order to extend their own lives whether it's trees or octopuses or uh human beings maybe that's a reason why there are so few humans around um that this is this is not an optimal society and i don't think wolf is on the side of society However, he's also not on the side of Paul in this story. Um, so this is just a good horror story, I think, uh, maybe without any real clear moral message. But maybe you have a really different reading of this than I do, Glenn. Well, it's hard to see this as an optimistic vision, right? I mean, for one, it is something that is growing out of a crisis, as you say. But then it's also extremely pessimistic to say that the only way to save ourselves is to stop being ourselves, right? That the only way to save the planet is for humans to alter their fundamental nature. The only way it's optimistic is in the fact that Wolf maybe believes that this is actually something that will become within our capability and and that's exciting it's really cool to be able to have that kind of power i suppose over over creation uh, but even even thinking about it in those terms right it's it's difficult to think of uh, a pious christian like gene wolf thinking that there's something good about humans appropriating for themselves the power of creation, the power that is the special purview of of God to be mixing up all of the 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 life forms that uh, that 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 stem from God's creation, and certainly the when we the last time we checked in on this idea of of taking animal dna and making a sentient creature out of it uh, that was it was not a good thing right that was an, an that was an abhorrent thing in sonia crane wesselman and kitty this was something people were doing so that they could have sex slaves but not be doing something that's illegal because even though this 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 creature resembles a human it is genetically an animal so it is okay to own it and to have sex with it and do whatever you want with it and i don't know that wolf has totally turned around on the idea and you know that we have maybe a serving class here in this society as well that is very much the same way so i i don't think this can be optimistic either i think it's actually i think it's actually a kind of subversive depiction of a utopia that isn't Right. I think Paul's attitude about this new masterclass is essentially that they are sentient animals, right? That you can eat. Like he has no taboos. Uh, there are zero taboos about uh, human beings, old school Homo sapiens eating the master class, not even really among the master class. Like the woman just accepts that they're food for. The human beings. And that kind of cuts two ways in the sense that it's a recognition that they view human beings as animals, though they wouldn't eat them. Um, they're just a relic of the past. And it also suggests, as I said, that there are no taboos around humans eating the new master class. So I think you're right in saying that it's definitely not an optimistic vision. Um, it's certainly... And and I think Wolf does want us to be in Paul's position to say that if all we keep in our humanity is rationalization and a desire for peace, but we're animalistic in every other way, how do we even justify some of the taboos that exist in our society? 
Well, this brings us to the, I think, the real question that we have to ask about this story, which is, is Paul a hero? Is is Paul a hero for resisting this system? Is is Paul a hero for rejecting this system, for living on, on the outskirts of it? And I mean, if he is a hero, is he actually morally justified in hunting and eating the the masters? Yeah, it's an it's an excellent question, and and it's complicated by the fact that the final image of the story is one of one that can be found in the Gospels, uh, with a uh, woman weeping over Christ's feet and using her tears to wash his feet and her hair to to dry them. Um, we have this same sort of imagery here, where Wolf loves to throw this sort of Christian imagery on his heroes without really telling the reader what to do with it at all. Paul is not on a traditional hero's journey at all in this story. So it's it's hard to find what stage of heroic person he is at this point. He He's in pure survival mode. He's not even really on a clear quest other than to get food and then get a wife. And we have to think about in what way Wolf is using the term hero other than to alert the reader that the protagonist is to be viewed as a good guy, even though he's doing these abhorrent things. We just don't know the type of society that he's in. And I think it's more on that level that Wolf is using the term hero uh, rather than taking us on Paul's hero's journey. I think we can look to the title for this as well, right? I mean, the title of the story is Hero as Werewolf, right? It's not Werewolf as Hero. So the the principal category to which Paul belongs, if we're assuming that he's the title character, is Hero, and then who happens to be a werewolf, right? It's not a sort of urban fantasy story uh, where the werewolf happens to be a hero, right? Where it's just where it's just a werewolf who's kind of getting by as a, a normal person, working as a you know private detective or a, a doctor or something like that. Right, exactly. And so I think Wolf is asking us to look at this society through the critical lens of of Paul's experience, um, and asking us to say on what level can we hold this person up into uh, hold this person into the light of heroism? And I think we've already discussed some of those ways in which Wolf is looking at this society as maybe abhorrent, as evil, that Paul's actions are justified because he is acting against an unjust or despicable system of governance or of social engineering or of genetic engineering. And that just his act of being, his 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 existence and his actions in this world are heroic in the sense that his going against the strain, his being a human being, his being itself is the right actions for the world to follow because the world has gone so far off track regardless of Paul's genetic heritage being in the class of people who have destroyed the earth in the first place. 
I think what really makes Paul a hero in this story, right, the heroic thing that he's doing is, in some ways, this is, this is a person versus nature story, that he's just trying to survive in a, in a world that is inhospitable, in a world where he actually can't get enough food, or at least where it's hard to get enough food. And what makes Paul heroic is, is not that he, he manages to survive for himself, but is that he marries Janie and is going to care for her, right? That, that there's something special about love in this story that, and, and this gets hammered home, you know, right at the end of the second act when Emmett Pendleton says, you know, even a bad man can love his kids, right? That even bad people are capable of, of love. And, love seems to be the the thing that is going on right very clearly at the end of the story that that Janie loves Paul so much that in fact she will gnaw off his leg in order to to save him even though you know it, it pains her emotionally to do this and she's crying while it's happening and you know this the only love that we see in the story is really from the the homo sapiens and in fact the uh, the the woman who is is hunted and killed at the the start of the story makes a point of explaining that the man she was with was not her her husband which is uh, you know then we're given a strong contrast in the language that is used about the relationship between Paul and Janie even though you know there there there's never any wedding ceremony they don't go to some local judge or there's no you know priest who marries them it's just she goes to live with Paul but she is described as his wife and he's described as her husband yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. But it's still like super complicated because they're doing uh, what we would consider to be really just awful acts. I mean, the the, the end, the, the the thing that gets them caught at the end of the story is murdering a child from the master class. You know, so it's it's still really complicated imagery and themes that wolf is laying out here in this story with regards to heroism absolutely and i'm going to bring that actually back around here because i don't think that the society of the masters is evil or abhorrent in any way right the the other part of this scene at the end is we uh, see the this video about kids being cared for and uh, having attachments with their parents and then having forming attachments with each other and then becoming adults so something that we know about adults and children whether they're masters or homo sapiens is that is that adults love their children parents love their kids on both sides of this so for me in 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 trying to come around a, you know in a way of kind of figuring out how paul this guy who is pretending to be a baby in order to lure people into dark alleys so he can kill them and eat them in what way he is a hero right this couple who has as you say just murdered a, a child in what way can they be heroic yeah, I mean, it's a really challenging question. And and the child, you know, it's not clear to me entirely that the child is a, is a master or of the master class, though I, I think he is uh, because he remains alive after his neck is broken. Uh, but it could also be that uh, through this video, we learn that maybe there's a society of people on the moon and Maybe that's where all the humans have gone as well. And that's another reason, as you know, it just occurs to me that, what, that these ghost traps that Paul thinks of them, they want to determine whether or not he's a human and better suited to live in, a, in the environment that humans have moved on to in some way. And so it's, it's extraordinarily 
difficult, the more we continue to talk about this story and the sort of open questions that are left within it, how, just how Paul can be considered a hero. Well, I want to sidestep this question. I think this is a conversation that we'll end up having a, a lot of uh, fruitful discussion around on the on the forum. But I want to approach this from another way, and that's just simply to ask you: Why did Wolf give this character the name Paul? This is the second Paul we've come across in Wolf's fish fiction. The first is Paul's Treehouse, which is about a young boy who is. Uh, sort of against society and what what is going on in society in some strange way and taking a, a very small revolutionary action. And I wonder if Paul, I wonder if Gene Wolfe isn't kind of using this name um, again here to look at another young outsider engaging in pseudo-revolutionary action against a society that they don't have a place in for one reason or another. Um, of course, there's the the Paul of uh, the New Testament, who is famously converted from being a persecutor of Christians to being the sort of chief Christian. Um, and that is another sort of step in the evolution of Christianity that turned Christianity into a sort of revolution uh, in its time. So I think this name has sort of maybe minor uh, revolutionary and conversion level overtones. And I wonder if Wolf is backloading some of that into the name uh, to do some work for him. Also, he might just really like the name. Well, Wolf scholar Robert Borsky, who we've, we've really only brought up, I think, one other time on, on the show, though that's a name that listeners are going to start hearing out of our mouths more frequently as we uh, we get into Wolf's kind of prime writing phase, and certainly when we get to the, the book of The New Sun. Uh, but Borsky has a, a book called The Long and the Short of It, More Essays on the Fiction of Gene Wolfe. And, and in this volume, there's an essay uh, called The Werewolf as Hero. And here he lays out a case for understanding Paul Guru in this story as Paul of the the New Testament as Paul the Apostle and and Borsky actually is the one who uh, really articulated for me this uh, this emphasis on on love and seeing the dichotomy of of Paul and Janie versus the the couple he attacks in the alley. I'll say I'm not sold on Borsky's reading here. I think he tries to to map the journey of Paul Guru on the journey of Paul the Apostle uh, a little too much. I don't think it quite works that well. But I think you've made a good case for for there being something something to that. But I'll say that I think my sense of why he is Paul here is simply for the the visual of it, the kind of the, the for the the letters because his last name is Guru. It's spelled a little bit differently, but Paul Guru is supposed to call to our minds Loop Guru which is the French word for werewolf. I, I'm not sure that the meaning in this case actually is meant to go any deeper than that, other than that he's trying to play around with all of these consonants. So we'll get that he's a werewolf. It's a pun, uh, just like the the Worthmore Pendletons is a pun. That was also on my mind as well, that uh, Loop Guru is, yeah, definitely being evoked here. And Paul is om- almost Loop backwards. And so, yeah, I think that is also a bit of Wolf's uh, wordplay, which we know he loves to get up to. I'm not really super convinced by uh, my explanation of why Wolf used Paul either, other than to say, 
you know, I think he does have an affinity for the name uh, and the person. Well, I'm going to switch gears here and and take us into uh, the realm of talking about genre a little bit, because on the face of it, this is a werewolf story. It's a werewolf story from the perspective of the werewolf, of the loop guru, right? I don't really know werewolf fiction all that well. I, I don't, you know, in the, certainly not to the extent that I know vampire fiction or zombie fiction, but maybe we can tease out some of the tropes that Wolf is playing with here, right? How does this story relate to other classic werewolf stories? Well, we're doing a lot with moon imagery in this story. There's the mention of the silver bell, and silver is kind of the classic foil of of werewolves in a lot of stories. We have this sort of sense of the character who has this super developed id um, that is on all the time and whose ego is kind of a little a little underdeveloped. And usually that's the the sort of werewolf story is the the exp- full expression of the id, the the repressed desires uh, who who are that are allowed to be let loose, you know, like one night a month. And that that's really what I saw sort of in this story. Uh, and maybe this this dog cop is also a funny little reference to it as well. This is a more benign sort of version of, uh, of, a, of a werewolf <laughs> that that wolf is playing with in the story, which sort of helps your argument. And I'm more and more convinced of it as, as we continue our discussion. Yeah, maybe that's really meant to be an allusion to some kind of uh, uh, werewolf cop story that Gene Wolfe knows about that I I don't know about. Though that's an idea that I I don't know. I want to go read whatever book that is that uh, that has a werewolf cop. But you know, Gene Wolfe actually writes about this story, of course, in his afterward in the the best of collection, as he always does. Is one of the things that's really valuable about that collection. And here, what he says is that he wanted to write a story using the original sense of the word werewolf as a man who is to be feared in the same way that wolves are feared and for the same reasons, rather than our modern idea of someone who actually transforms into a wolf or, or really the way that we have it in our contemporary society, really since the, the late 19th century of uh, a, a human being who transforms into something that is a hybrid between a human being and a wolf. So really what Wolf was getting at here is a story about a person who is wolfish in some way, but isn't actually transforming you know, his body. Uh, though we see certainly other bodies transforming all around him here in this story, which I think is a really great inversion of that. And he even uses Kipling again in his discussion of this story. Uh, Here's where he he brings in a poem called The King's Task. He just has two lines that he says, you know, will help us understand what he was getting at here. And the, the lines from this poem that he gives us are, wolf-wise feigning and flying, and wolf-wise snatching his man. And you know, wolf wise here, meaning wolf like and, and, you know, feigning, uh, running, uh, snatching a, a person, right? These are the behaviors that we see in Paul in this story, right? He hunts other people as if he himself is more a wolf than a human, which is also in some sense, the story of, of Mowgli in the jungle book that opens this. And even as I went and, and reread the Jungle Book for this, I had to go track down this whole poem, which of course is you know totally easily available on the internet. And this poem, The King's Task, is it's a few pages long. It's not a massive epic, but it's very cool. It's a it's a poem about pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons fighting a war in the aftermath of the the fall of the Roman Empire. 
And uh, it was really great. I would, I don't know, love to find some way to do a Patreon episode on it someday, if, uh, if that's something listeners would be would be interested in. Uh, but I'm, I'm bringing us far afield here. But we actually have one more question, a kind of loose end that I want to uh, want to address. And it came up, you brought it up actually in the recap, but, but in his treatment of this story in Between Light and Shadow, Mark Aramini uh, points to this line from the, the woman that Paul kills at the beginning when she says, dead, never, never, never. Another year and everything would have been all right. I want to cry, but I can't breathe to. And what Mark is wondering about this line is in what way would everything have been all right in another year? And what do you make of this? I guess there's a number of things that this implies. One is that this woman has some information about the direction of the society in a massive plan to destroy all the remaining humans. Um, And that could be another indication of what these ghost houses are about. Another could be that when you live in the society long enough, you become immortal. Um, And this is kind of my... I don't know if this is my sense, but I, I have through our discussion, just been toying with the idea that this is a secret werewolf versus va- vampire story. Um, though there's not a lot of defense for that, but I think Wolf, as I've said, is using some of this this Victorian vampirish imagery to, to talk about the masters. And this woman is on the cusp of, of becoming immortal. And another sense is, is that she would have left for the moon, maybe in some way, where there are no humans or something like that, and would have never had to deal with this problem because there's a there's another elite society off planet. Um, but there could be other senses as well. But I'm not I'm not really quite sure what to make of this line. It's kind of a very strange line to just drop in the story. Yeah, well, Mark, Mark agrees with your last supposition there, right? Mark supposes that the, the masters are actually all relocating to the, the moon. And that's why it's, you know, made explicit to us at the end that masters are on the moon, that they have, you know, a settlement there called Armstrong. And I think that's what the rocket is at the beginning as well. I think that all of the masters are actually moving up to the moon, which uh, even though it doesn't have biological life, has mineral resources still. And so uh, there's a sense that that's a new world we can move to where we can start over. And it may also actually be that there's just an exodus that is necessary to get humans, or really get the masters, we should say, off of the planet while the planet heals through the the program of of uh, bioengineering that they've created uh, or some something like that. So I, I'm, I'm with Mark on that on that reading. Yeah, it's a solid reading. And this wolf, this story feels so much like it could take place in the same universe as the Book of the New Sun. Um, You know, if the moon is being populated in this way with uh, these genetically altered humans and they they grow a forest uh, on it uh, in order to be able to live and create new resources there, also maybe to sustain their own life. You maybe have an example of like where the exaltants came from, their differences from other people genetically. Um, and this story just feels like a weird sort of origin story, not to mention again that it was published in an anthology called The New Improved Son, uh, and I feel like Wolf was kind of teasing out some ideas that he definitely picks up later uh, from this story. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that this story is also in the same universe as Sonia Crane-Wesselman and Kitty. So the, all three of those things are, are in a line. Uh, did not anticipate, right, that Sonia Crane-Wesselman and Kitty was going to somehow turn out to be really important for our understanding of Book of the New Sun. But I'm now predicting uh, in, you know, nine years when we're done with that, that it will turn out to be turn out to be true. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll... I'm sure we'll find out whether or not that's the case. Well, I think now that we are looking nearly a decade into the future of the show, I think that is going to do it for this episode and for this story. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Hero as Werewolf. This was a story that I think we both really loved and we would really enjoy talking about it. And we threw a lot of questions out here and I'm not sure how satisfactory we really answered uh, the question about Paul as hero or the hero as werewolf here. That's a conversation I would really love to have on the forums. Yeah, please join us on the forums, especially to discuss this one. It is a, it's a really challenging gauntlet that Wolf has thrown down here. If you'd like to support the show, please consider joining us on Patreon. We have a ton of great bonus episodes on there from our whole podcast network. And as we said in the past episode, your support does go a long way to keeping us on the air. Next time, we'll be starting the novella Tracking Song, which you can find in the Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.